0: me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the author of Hebrews, whoever that was, uh, that, uh, that by your spirit you inspired this person to sit down uh, and to, uh, to help your people uh, understand how the Old Testament points to Christ, how it is that we on this side of the cross are to read the Old Testament and what good it is to us and for us that we have the Old Testament. Father, we pray that as we uh, we go about this work, your spirit would attend the reading of this word, that we would come to a right understanding of it, that your word uh, and your spirit working through the word would encourage us and admonish us, would build us up in faith and hope and love, would accomplish all that you have set out to accomplish, Father, for our good. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Yeah, one of the things that we try to do with Bible study is not only... Uh, you know, give you the content, feed you from God's Word, but to also model for you uh, how it is that you can do this on your own. Uh, We do that in a couple of ways. One of them, though, is just doing it in front of you. And so, one of the things I'm going to be doing, uh, though I'll be spending my week uh, in preparation for Sunday school, uh, it's, it's not, I don't expect it to be Uh, a really sharply organized three points in Sunday school. We're going to do something a a lot more like what Calvin did. Uh, Calvin, John Calvin in the Reformation, was recovering the Word of God for the people of God. He wasn't the only one doing it. Uh, But Calvin's preaching looked a little different than ours does. Uh, Calvin would open the Word up and just begin to walk through it very carefully, explaining it, helping the, the people apply it, uh, and just working through it. It wasn't the neat three points. Each point explained and, uh, and applied neatly and moved to the second point. Uh, in, a, in fact, in, in one of the, the favorite stories that many who know this, this story, it's, it's usually numbered in kind of the top three stories about Calvin. Uh, he was ministering in Geneva. He was constantly at odds with the city fathers. And finally, it resulted in him being fired and he goes off to Strasbourg and kind of uh, does that. I didn't want to be here, anyways. You know, you guys coerced me into being here. So he moved off to where he was actually headed when he was uh, intercepted and brought to Geneva. And so he's, uh, he's in Strasbourg for some time, and, uh, and they, they, everything falls apart in Geneva, and the city fathers say, We made a mistake. Calvin, will you please come back? Uh, And the letter he writes to them in response is one of the the great letters written in history because he's full of all sorts of of really stark imagery about the things he'd rather do than come back to Geneva and minister in this church. Uh, He closes the letter by saying, but fine, I'll come back. Uh, His very first time back in the pulpit, after having been gone for, it was at least a year, uh, he climbs back into the pulpit and he says, I believe the last time we were together, we were in verse such and such, chapter such and such of this book. And he picks, right, picks up right where he left off as if he had never been gone, right? That's kind of how we're going we're gonna to work through Hebrews. We're just going to pick it up and we're just going to start reading it and, uh, and seeking to understand it. Uh, there's going to be a lot of time spent in the Old Testament. The author of Hebrews is entirely taken up with the question not only of, uh, of the, the Old Testament and the fact that it's pointing to Christ, but also the fact that you can't have both. You can't keep Moses, the law of Moses, uh, and uh, by keep, I mean you, you can't continue to observe uh, and trust in the law of Moses and have Christ. Uh, it's, it's one or the other, and Christ is greater. And so he's going to, as you would imagine, spend a lot of time in the Old Testament. And so, as we, anytime you pick up a book of the Bible and say to yourself, "I'm going to study this book carefully," uh, there are some best practices uh, that the church has discovered over uh, many, many years, centuries of studying God's Word. And one of those practices is what we're going to do today. You take it up, and before you open it uh, and begin reading it and trying to understand it, you you ask yourself, who's writing it? And to whom are they writing it? Uh, and why are they writing it? How did they organize the material? When was it written? Especially for us, uh, looking back, you know, almost 2,000 years now since the writing of this letter, uh, there are some realities about their time and place that if we don't take those into account, may lead us to to actually misunderstand the book. And so that's what we want to do today. In as much as we have the information, we want to, uh, to understand it. So this is why we do introductory study, you see there under the first heading. We do it in order to better understand the author and the audience and the times in which the book was written. Uh, and though there's more that we'll need in order to do proper interpretation, it gives us a, a good foundation, better insight into the meaning of the text. So we start with the author of Hebrews, who wrote Hebrews. Now, when we know the author, uh, it's helpful uh, when, when the author, I should say, is generally known, it's helpful for us in studying to know who that author was. Uh, it gives us context. The author of Hebrews... Uh, about the only thing we can say about the author of Hebrews, uh, apart from the fact that they know excellent Greek and they know the Old Testament incredibly well, is that it's not one of the apostles. That's about all we know. The bottom line is the book doesn't claim an author for itself. Uh, we believe Scripture is infallible. So when a book says it's written by Paul, for example, uh, we receive that. We we believe that Paul is the author because we don't believe that Scripture has any error in it. But when we come to Hebrews, we don't have an author uh, in the book. The book doesn't say who's writing it. And so, uh, again, the Greek is excellent. The argument is lawyer-like. It's it's rhetorically a flawless argument. The author is intimately familiar with the Old Testament law and how Christ corresponds to the Old Testament revelation. He's almost certainly not an apostle, and Paul, therefore, would be ruled out as the author since he never claims this for himself. Uh, And in fact, he implies that he heard about Christ from someone else uh, in chapter 2, verse 3. Let's take a look at that really quickly. I want you to see what I'm I'm getting at here. Uh, The author of Hebrews makes a statement that would not be consistent with uh, any of the other apostles. It wouldn't be true for any of them. He says in Hebrews chapter 2, it's in verse 3, but I'm going to just start in verse 1. He says, "'Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord.' And it was attested to us by those who heard. Notice he includes himself, attested by us. Uh, And who did the attestation? It was those who heard. uh, Implying that the author himself did not, with his own ears, hear this from the Lord. But he heard it from someone who heard it from the Lord. So, almost certainly the author is not Paul. Uh, Paul is, in history, one of the most popular uh, uh, theories of authorship, but probably not Paul. In the past, when I've done introduction to Hebrews, I have uh, sometimes uh, provided a list of of everyone I've ever seen mentioned by any authority, any New Testament authority, uh, as a potential author for Paul. The list got so long that as I was preparing for this this morning, I thought, uh, forget it, uh, it's, I don't have room in a front and back of a piece of paper to include all of the people that somebody somewhere who is in a good position to make a guess uh, suggests might have been the author. Uh, why don't we know the author? Uh, we don't know why we don't know the author. I mean, we know that the name's not there, no name is given, right, that's the obvious answer. But why, why wasn't a name given? Uh, why doesn't the author identify himself? Uh, and it could be for several reasons. Uh, it could be that uh, that the audience knows full well who the author is, his initial, his original audience, uh, and he had no need to identify himself. Uh, one of the, the more uh, controversial suggestions in evangelicalism is that the author is a woman, uh, and that in the first century, despite the fact that one of the most progressive uh, places in the, the Christian world in, in the, the Mediterranean world at the time for women was in the church, uh, nonetheless, a, uh, a woman author might not have been well-received in the churches, and so the author doesn't identify themselves. Those who hold to Pauline authorship suggest that Paul withheld his name because he's writing primarily to a Jewish audience, and he knows that there are many who will not receive his message simply because they don't like him. Uh, Paul was controversial, not only among the Jews who weren't receiving Christ, but even among some of those who were accepting Christ. Remember, Paul's trouble in the church was against the Judaizers, Uh, and so one argument is that Paul wrote it, and he didn't include his name, so that it wouldn't become a stumbling block to receiving the message. Again, I'm not, uh, I don't think Paul is a reasonable option as an author. It may be that whoever the author is, they simply didn't want their identity detracting at all. They didn't want to be a distraction. Uh, oh, this person's not an apostle. Uh, this, this is kind of an umbrella for, you know, maybe the author is, is a woman. Uh, you say, well, woman, where in the world does that come from? Well, Priscilla and Aquila makes a pretty strong argument for there having been a woman in the church at this time capable of writing a letter like this, right? So maybe there was something about the author that the, the author was concerned that if they identified themselves with the letter, uh, that it would, it would somehow cause the readers to reject it outright, uh, a, a sort of ad hominem argument. Uh, I, I don't care what they say, I won't listen because of who it is, right? But whatever the reason, no name is given, and ultimately, from, in terms of, of Bible study, as we prepare to take this book up, That suggests to us that we don't need to know who the author is. Uh, We have enough information otherwise to provide us with a context and if it was important for us to know who the author is in order to understand it rightly, we would have been told. But we're not and therefore that we we don't need to know apparently. Uh, Next, when was it written? I'm going to talk about this briefly and then I'll pause for questions. There's a lot of controversy about this book uh, in terms of when it was written, a lot of debate. Uh, there's basically two periods suggested. One is the 90s and one is uh, the 60s in the first century. I hold to the earlier date uh, for what, uh, for me, is an irrefutable argument uh, for the early date. I can't even believe anybody takes up an older date than the 60s. Uh, and that is because in, the se- in 70. The temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. Now, a quick refresher. Uh, all of the Jewish religion in the first century was focused entirely on the temple cult. And I use cult in a, a historical sense, not you know like a bad religion sense. The, the cultists, right? Everything about the Jewish religion ultimately culminated in what happened at the temple. And in fact, without a temple, they cannot keep the law of Moses. The law of Moses is, is, is concerned and caught up entirely with this question of how it is, what, what, how are they to live, and when they fail, how are they to be atoned, right? How are they to, to be made one with God again, despite their sin? And the, the answer to that question is only at the temple. There's express commandment against attempting to do the things they do at the temple anywhere else. You can build a replica of the temple on a different hill and it would be a sin, according to the law of Moses, rebellion for you to worship at that temple and to do the things at that temple that you're supposed to be doing at the temple in Jerusalem. The reason that I, I, I want to clarify this is because in 70, when the temple is destroyed, it's not like the people of Israel just sort of shrug and say, well, we, we, I think we've still got that tent somewhere. Let's get that thing out, uh, and, uh, and we'll just kind of rove around again like they did in Exodus and just kind of do this wherever we get the opportunity. This is a major, major hindrance to the keeping of the law. And it, it, you remember, too, the context in the, the Gospels, uh, the Pharisees, uh, particularly the Pharisees, They are entirely caught up with uh, trying to express and enforce a law of God in Israel that will keep God from disciplining them as a nation again. You remember in the Old Testament, because of their faithlessness, Judah goes off into uh, exile. Babylon, the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and uh, finally in 586, he destroys Jerusalem. And takes everybody captive. Seventy years later, Cyrus, the Persian who has defeated the Babylonians and now inherited that empire, uh, Cyrus issues a decree and sends all these peoples back to their lands, including Israel, and gives them not only permission to rebuild the temple, but actually says, I'll supply everything you need to get it done. And as the people come back into the land, you can read in Ezra and particularly in Nehemiah, there's a real concern not to get caught up in the sin that they were engaged in that caused them to be exiled in the first place. Uh, And all of that has developed over these centuries, uh, roughly 500 years, almost 600 years. It's developed so that by the time we come to Christ in the gospel accounts, there is a, a whole industry of religion in Palestine, designed to make sure the people don't break the law so that God will not send them out of the land again. And in that context, in 70, the temple is destroyed. What will they do? Now, they had some model of this because they, they, they had been without a temple while they were in Babylon, right? So, there's a whole history of, of what becomes Judaism uh, as we know it today. But uh, it's a singular stroke and a a, uh, a really a a brutal uh, event in the religious life of the Jewish people. The author of Hebrews, whose entire argument is don't go back to Moses. You can't go back to Moses. That priesthood is no good for you anymore. That covenant is no good for you anymore. Nothing about that regime can save you. It all pointed to Jesus Christ who has now come. It defies uh, any kind of uh, believability. Uh, I, I can't imagine the author of Hebrews knows the temple's been destroyed in Jerusalem and doesn't mention it. I mean, what a clear proof that God no longer requires you to go to that temple every year and to offer sacrifices because the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, language we get from the author of Hebrews, by the way, the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ has been accomplished. The temple in Jerusalem is destroyed and the author of Hebrews says nothing about it. I mean, I would have had at least a chapter if I was writing the book of Hebrews, about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. What, evidence do you, what more evidence do you need that God no longer requires you to do this? He's allowed the temple to be destroyed, and he says nothing. So we've got a really uh, rock-solid date for the destruction of Jerusalem, which is 70, AD 70. Uh, and I would argue that the book must be written prior to this. Uh, the author of Hebrews will even describe the priests in the temple working in the present tense suggesting that even as he writes, there are Levitical priests at the temple in Jerusalem working. And so the the book is almost certainly written prior to 70, and for a lot of reasons that that start to get into fairly technical arguments uh, that I think take us too far afield, uh, particularly it appears as though 64 is the best date for the book. This also corresponds to Nero's persecution uh, in Rome. And, uh, and that persecution might be what motivates the author to write. Uh, we'll talk about that in just a minute, why that would be. Let me pause. Any questions so far? Yeah. So is the author talking about the ceremonial law and maybe part of the civil? Or yeah, so he's going to talk about uh, Uh, or she, yeah, Um, is going to talk about uh, things that are passing away, and we'll see when we get there in our study that what's passing away is the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, God is in relationship with his people throughout history according to covenants. That is, he comes to his people, and he makes promises to them, uh, and he requires things of them, Uh, and so we we talk about the, the covenant made with Adam in the garden. Uh, the language of covenant is not used in Genesis 1 through 3, but it is used later in the prophets. It says, like Adam, they broke the covenant. Uh, and so we, we understand Adam was in covenant with God, what we call the covenant of works, or the covenant of creation, uh, or the covenant of life, all, all different titles for the same covenant. Uh, we see a covenant made with, Mo, with uh, Noah, remember, after the flood. Uh, God makes a covenant with Noah and promises that he will never again destroy the earth by a flood. Uh, and uh, we're going to be preaching through Genesis uh, on Sunday mornings here, starting in a few weeks. And so uh, we'll, we'll get to that account of Noah and that, that particular covenant. He makes a covenant with Abraham, uh, famously, in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. You read about that covenant. He makes a covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, in all of these covenants, God is in relationship with his people according to that covenant. And the covenant made with Moses, is the, the it, it structures, it's not just a list of laws. It's not just that God said, hey, boom, here's some laws, keep them or you'll die. Uh, he actually, remember how Exodus 20 begins, you hear me say this all the time. He doesn't say, first commandment, do this. He says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Elsewhere, he describes his covenant relationship with his people. He says, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I will be with you. That's, that's almost, we, we, we tend to, uh, in scholarship and in, in, uh, in academics as we wrestle with, with theology, we tend to think of that as a summary of the covenant of grace. And so, God is in relationship with His people according to covenant. So, to come back to your question, sorry, going way around to get back to your question, there's a particular covenant in the history of the people of Israel, the covenant made with Moses, and that covenant defines uh, the people of God. Uh, In that covenant, God says, You are a people. He says, You are my people. And as my people, this is what I'm doing for you. And this is what you will do to and for and with me. Uh, And that's the context in which the law is given. That law, as we look back on it, we understand that that law uh, can be understood in three kinds. Now, it's not that you can take all 600 and however many laws there are and break them up into three distinct groups. There's a lot of overlap. But there are three elements in the law of Moses, the, the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. The civil law was, remember, Israel in the Old Testament under the law of Moses is a theocracy. God is king. We talk about Saul and David and Solomon, etc. cetera. Uh, those were all kings, but they were, in a sense, regents under, uh, stewards, to use uh, a technical term, stewards of the kingdom of God. God was the true king, and he is the lawgiver, right? And so the civil law described how they would function as a civil society. The ceremonial law describes how they will worship God. How will they worship? How will atonement be made for them? What is right? What is wrong? And what do you do when somebody breaks that law, right? That, that kind of crosses over into civil and ceremonial. The author of Hebrews is going to argue that the entire Mosaic Covenant is defaulted. It's done, it's abrogated, it's no more. Uh, You can take the entire Mosaic Covenant and law and you can set it aside. There is a significant caveat, the moral law in the Mosaic Covenant is an expression of God's very character which is unchanging. It existed before the law of Moses, it was incorporated into the law of Moses, and it continues after the law of Moses. That law never goes away, but we don't keep that law today because of Moses, right? The Ten Commandments are an expression of the moral law. We don't. We are not committed to the Ten Commandments we are not under the conviction that the Ten Commandments are law for us today because they were given through Moses, because somehow the, the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is somehow sort of still in effect partially. It's not. It's gone. The author of Hebrews says it's done. And if you then say, well, what about the Ten Commandments? Yeah, the Ten Commandments are still in effect, but not because we received them as such, Right, Not because God with His finger wrote on the tablets and those tablets were given to us, but because what is revealed in the Ten Commandments is the very character of God to which we are called to conform. Right. So, when we, and we'll, we'll spend a lot of time talking about this when we study the book, get in verse by verse, but what the author of Hebrews is saying has gone away is the Mosaic Covenant as a means by which God is in relationship with his people. That, that covenant's gone. The theocracy of Israel no longer exists, and therefore there's no, there's no context even for the civil law of the Old Testament to be observed or enforced. The temple is destroyed, and for good reason, right? We ought as Christians to be able to say good riddance to the temple and to its sacrifices because Jesus Christ has come and fulfilled those things forever. Again, this is the very context in which the author of Hebrews describes the sacrifice of Christ as once for all. Why Why does he stress once for all? Because in Moses, it's all the time, right? The, The animals that either were or should have been brought for sacrifice are just almost infinite. It's just constant slaughter. And the author of Hebrews says, no, not anymore. There was one True sacrifice. It happened one time and it did all that was necessary and is no longer required. It doesn't have to happen over and over again. So the moral law is still in effect, not as a part of the Mosaic covenant. That covenant is gone. Uh, But as an expression of the unchanging character of God in which we were created, right? Created in the image of God and to which we are being restored, right? We are being made like Christ, who is the very image of God. Okay, other questions before we go on? Isn't that kind of like, you know, we're we're to be held to to that standard, but the correction of of our sin is not a sacrifice. That, That piece is what's really changed. But morally... The, the moral. Yeah, the moral law is still in effect. Um, it, it's not, in fact, it's not weakened. It's strengthened. And not to get too far afield, because it's not a study of Matthew, but this is what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, you have heard it said, and then he quotes the law of Moses. And then he, he makes clear to them, they've all broken it. Right? You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but if you've even looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery in your heart. Right? We think of Jesus as removing a burden, and he does, but we have to understand how he removes that burden. He doesn't remove the burden of the law by saying to us, don't worry, you don't have to keep it anymore. In that respect, he makes it much harder. In the same context, in Matthew. He says, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus is not lifting the requirement to keep the moral law, right? But we're not bound to keep it today because we are in the Mosaic covenant. That's the the point of the author of Hebrews. We're bound to keep it because we are in Christ and because he is God and because this is his character and his character never changes. And anything we do that is contrary to the character of God himself is rebellion. It's twisted. It's broken. You can use whatever metaphorical language you like. It's sickness. It's cancer. It's wrong. Uh, God has, has covered it in Christ, right? He's executed his wrath against it. Justice has been done in Jesus Christ so that those who are in Christ, we don't keep the law now in order to be justified. We can't. Uh, You cannot keep the law, the moral law, prior to Moses, in Moses, or after Moses. You cannot keep it and therefore be saved. You can't be a good enough person. If in your mind you're going to stand before Peter at the pearly gates and your entrance, your pass through the gates is going to be, I did my best and God is a a God of love, you, you, you are sadly mistaken. Your best is horrendous. It is infinitely pathetic, as is mine, right? The good news, which is what gospel means, the good news of Jesus Christ is that you no longer have to do anything in order to be saved. You don't have to keep the law to be saved. Jesus Christ kept the law perfectly, and that's credited to you. He received the just wrath of God against all of our sins, and that is credited to you. So that believing in Jesus Christ and repenting of your sins is all that is required for salvation. And one who is saved will want to look like his God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is that? How, how do we know what he looks like? Morally. It's because God has revealed it in his word in the moral law. And so the moral law becomes to us a pattern after, that we follow a pattern after which we move towards Christ-likeness, and we do that by the power of the Spirit that dwells in us. Right? So that this, is, this is what's behind when you hear us say you don't have to keep the law anymore, you get to. That law-keeping ought to be joyful. Uh, it's hard, but, uh, but if you've ever worked hard to learn an instrument, if worked hard in the gym to build a physique, you know that as hard as it is, there's joy in it. And there's a goal that you're moving towards that you desire. And there's a celebration as you see yourself achieving these milestones in the goal. That's what law-keeping is in the context of Christianity. It's doing the hard work by the power of the Spirit, pursuing hard after Christ Himself in His character, desiring to look like Him, to be like Him, and thankful that where we fail, it's not a condemnation. But that that too is covered in Christ. Okay, let's move on. Uh, to whom was it written? This I think there's uh, there's there's some debate on. I don't I don't know that it's uh, it's that difficult. I think it's important though. There are some who say it's only written to Jews. Uh, the argument is: look at all the Jewish imagery, all the Old Testament stuff. Nobody else knows anything about all that stuff. Uh, but the Jews. Who else would have been tempted to go back to it would have been the Jews. Uh, Therefore, it's written to the Jews. My concern with that is not only that it ignores certain important historical facts, but that it seriously calls into question the usefulness of the book for us today, right? Because if the only concern of the author is that you not go back to Moses, I don't think there's too many of us in here under that particular threat, Anybody here really struggling with whether or not to go back to the temple cultists of the Old Testament? No, right? There is no Levitical priesthood today. You can't go back to it. It doesn't exist. And so, uh, so who is he writing to? Uh, I do think he's writing to a community that is, is ethnically, as a community, Jewish. But what we know about the Jewish community, especially in the diaspora, uh, the Jewish community spread out throughout the world in the first century, is that when they gathered together in synagogue, there were often, I don't know if it was always, but it might have been always, Gentiles present in their worship. Uh, Some of those Gentiles converted to Judaism. Some of them uh, worshiped the God of Israel, but didn't formally convert. They are known as God-fearers. In the New Testament. When you read in the book of Acts about God-fearers, they're talking about Gentiles who have not taken the last step to convert, but they are convinced that the God of Israel is the true God and they worship Him. Uh, these folks, these Gentiles, would have known the Old Testament. They, in their joining together in the synagogue for worship, they would have heard it read, they would have heard it expounded, uh, they would have known the Old Testament. Uh, every indication is that in synagogue communities, there was a significant desire to know and keep the law of God, so they would have known the law of God. They would have understood the priesthood in Jerusalem. And so I believe that uh, it's written to a mixed Christian community. Uh, it, uh, it fits overall uh, the theology better. The church is not two peoples. Uh, that's another problem with the idea that it's written only to Jewish people ethnically. By the first century, Christ having ascended, the church growing in the world, uh, the the church is no longer a, a physical ethnic reality. There's not one ethnicity in the church. Uh, the church is growing uh, with Gentile membership uh, that quickly, before, long before the end of the first century, overwhelms the Jewish ethnic identity of the community. Uh, Not only this, but as we've talked about before, it's so uh, the the terms, Israel or uh, um, Jew versus Gentile, uh, even in the writing of the New Testament, those terms have been spiritualized. It's not that they can't be used in their literal physical sense, we do see that sometimes, um, I've got a, I don't have to sit on the table, I've got a stool. Um, it's not that we don't see them used. What that means is when we encounter these terms in the New Testament, we need to be careful to make sure we understand how they're being used because sometimes they're used spiritually. Uh, this is how Paul can describe anyone who's not following God as a Gentile. Right? He's not the only one. Uh, Is it only Gentiles who don't follow God? No, right? Uh, He's taking that Old Testament image of this unique people of God who is ethnically Jewish and the rest of the world, right? Israel contra mundo. It's, It's Israel who are the people of God, the rest of the world are not. But even in the Old Testament, God's revealing that his intention is that they would be a mission in the world that the nations would see and believe and come in. That's happening in the New Testament, and what the New Testament authors do is they take up that imagery of the Old Testament, and they say that everyone who is in Christ is true Israel, and anyone who is apart from Christ is a Gentile, regardless of actual physical ethnicity, right? So, because the, the people of God are both Jew and Gentile, because the, the potential threat in the context of going back to a Jewish faith that seems safer. We still haven't talked about that much. Uh, That's the next point in our notes. Uh, Because that was the temptation, it's a temptation open to Gentiles as much as to Jews. And so uh, it's written to both Jew and Gentile. We'll talk as we go through the letter about why it is that we, we believe the letter is still applicable to us, even though there's no temptation to go back to a Levitical priesthood, for example. Um, Next is why was it written? So probably persecution. Everything in the letter suggests that the people uh, that the letter is sent to are under pressure because of their Christianity. And there's some temptation to go back to that Jewish faith uh, which in the first century had the protection of Rome. Uh, Rome didn't care what you believed or who you worshipped as long as uh, you, you were a good citizen, right? Uh, and I'm summarizing here and not necessarily very well. There's, uh, I'm trying to feel my way through this. Uh, Judaism, as long as they did what they were told, as long as they didn't cause trouble and break the peace, uh, the Jewish faith was, uh, was put up with. It was tolerated. In the first century. Uh, Now, you know, when Rome is destroyed in 70, it's because the the Jewish people rose up in revolt. Uh, They tried to throw off the Roman yoke and were crushed by Rome. But generally speaking, if you were Jewish in the Roman Empire, you were not persecuted for your Judaism. Christianity is early on mistaken for the Jewish religion. It's considered a sect of the religion and it does okay. But as time goes on, it becomes clearer to everybody this is not a sect of the Jewish faith. This is a, a new religion, as the world saw it. Uh, it was different. And it, there were things that Christians were not willing to do. And as such, they began to be persecuted. There's, therefore, a temptation for some in the Christian church at the time to, to either go back to the Jewish religion that, that wasn't persecuted or to begin to uh, model their Christian faith on Moses. In other words, to encourage the confusion about the fact that we are not a sect of the Jewish faith, right? Uh, If the world is confused and in their confusion they leave us alone, let's go ahead and encourage that confusion. Whether it's a wholesale return to the Jewish faith, or it's just adopting forms within their Christianity in an effort to appear to be a sect of the Jewish faith, the author of Hebrews is saying you can't do that. Uh, You you cannot keep Moses, not in any form or fashion. The, The Mosaic covenant is dead, and there is no salvation in that covenant. And he's going to go on then to explain where salvation is to be found, and how the Mosaic Covenant pointed towards that salvation, how it was, uh, it was a, a nursery for the people of God until Christ did come, uh, but as such, His having come, uh, the Mosaic Covenant is no longer needed. Uh, major theme, I think we've, uh, we've communicated this pretty well by now, you cannot have Moses, either the man or the covenant, and Christ. Christ is ultimate. He's going to show how Christ is better. You don't want to go back to Moses because what you have is better than Moses, even if it means persecution. I think that's an important thing for us to remember today. Let's look at the structure and outline. And it would be best if you picked up your Bible and kind of flipped through the book of Hebrews as we do this. Um, I would encourage you, again, in the interest of Bible study uh, and Bible study method, I would encourage you this week to read the book of Hebrews all the way through as many times as you can. It may only be once, but, uh, but whatever time you've got, direct your Bible reading to the book of Hebrews and read it through as quickly as you can, and then as often as you can. There's, uh, there's an incredible and rich blessing that comes from reading it carefully, line by line, and, and, and studying it verse by verse, but there's a benefit to understanding it line by line and verse by verse when you've got a sense of the whole, right? Uh, You can say a lot more about a particular forest when you get down on the floor of that forest with a microscope if you have some sense of the whole forest. And that's what we're we're doing when we read through Hebrews quickly uh, and frequently. And so taking a look at the structure and outline, uh, I borrowed this... Uh, this outline from Philip Edgecombe Hughes' uh, commentary on the epistle to the Hebrews. Uh, I looked at a lot of uh, different commentaries this week. Uh, outlines are not inspired, uh, but there are some that I think are more helpful and others that are less. And this one I think is the most helpful. Uh, he, uh, he takes the very opening section, which a lot of, of commentaries treat as prologue, and I think that's, that's probably fine. But I think he does a helpful thing here. He says Christ is superior to the prophets. It's consistent with the theme throughout the book. Uh, the supremacy of God's Son is how the ESV titles that first chapter. But uh, the, the emphasis on the prophets just runs through the first three verses and then transitions uh, pretty quickly to the angels. Uh, and so in verse 4 there uh, and following. So Christ is superior to the angels, verses Uh, 1, 4 through chapter 2, verse 18. Then Christ is superior to Moses, beginning in chapter 3. Uh, Jesus greater than Moses, the ESV, heads this section. Uh, Look at what he's going to do. Uh, And and the headings in your Bible, again, though not inspired, usually are helpful to give you a sense of the argument, right? And so, uh, a rest for the people of God, chapter 3, verse 7. Uh, in chapter 4 verse 14, Jesus the great high priest. And so you you begin to see how the argument is being made. Uh, In chapter 3, he's focused on uh, the Sabbath. That's the verse 7, a rest for the people of God. So he talks about the Sabbath in uh, 3 and 4. Then before he finishes there in chapter 4 verse 14, we have a transition to Christ being superior to Aaron. Remember, Aaron is the great high priest uh, in the Exodus uh, account. And so he, he's going to talk about that priesthood of Aaron. What was that priesthood for? Uh, what was the good of it? What was the, the bad of it? And we come to a warning passage there in chapter 6. In chapter 7, he's going to transition to Melchizedek in particular. He's going to explain how Christ is a priest. It's not according to the order of Levi, it's according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, we did a, a podcast on that. Uh, I think it was this week we published that one. So you can go back and listen to that and, uh, and get some, uh, some help understanding Melchizedek and how he is related to Christ. Jesus compared to Melchizedek. Uh, Jesus, high priest of a better covenant. So under that umbrella of Christ's priesthood, uh, we have the covenant in which he is a priest, he is the high priest. So he's going to talk about the, this better covenant. This is particularly where we begin to see more explicit instruction from the author of Hebrews that the Mosaic covenant is defunct. It's no longer in effect. And so uh, he talks about uh, the temple and the work that is done at the temple, Christ's sacrifice, verse 10, how it's better than the sacrifices that, that, uh, that followed in the temple. Uh, and then the full assurance of faith there at the end of chapter ten, which leads into chapter eleven, uh, and a, uh, a an encouragement to faith. So that uh, that's taken us up through Christ is superior to Aaron, and then Christ is superior as the new and living way, chapter ten nineteen through twelve twenty nine, uh, and then in uh, chapter thirteen you get the concluding exhortations and requests and greetings. Some of the things that sound a little bit more like a letter, um, and that leads us into genre, and then we'll be done for today. Uh, it's called the letter to the Hebrews, or the epistle to the Hebrews. Epistle, just an older English word that means letter; uh, it means message. Um, <clears throat> and so, in in one sense, it certainly is, and it closes like a letter closes, uh, with some final instructions, greetings to some people. That is. Uh, the the group to whom the letter is going, there are some people there he wants to greet. So he says, "Hey, give greetings to this person and that person." But you'll notice it doesn't open like a letter, right? Uh, not just Paul, but John uh, and Peter. Uh, it's It's typical for them to open a letter, uh, you know by saying, well here's here's Titus, right? Uh, I I give thanks always for you in my prayers, right? Very typical pattern for New Testament letters. Uh, Compare the opening to Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Etc. Right, that doesn't sound like a typical letter, and in fact, the rest of, of Hebrews until we get to chapter thirteen sounds more like a sermon. Uh, it, it's delivered with the polemical uh, framework of a sermon that's being preached, and so uh, so that's that's how we're going to approach it. Okay, uh, we're just a minute or two over time, but I will. Uh, any questions? before we close in prayer. I'm excited about uh, getting into Hebrews. We'll, we'll pick up next week with Hebrews 1, starting in verse 1. I don't know how far we'll get. Uh, we're just going to, to get as far as we can each Sunday and pick up the next Sunday where we left off and, uh, and consider uh, what the author of Hebrews has to teach us about Christ and the law of Moses. So let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you. For, uh, for the book of Hebrews, for this letter, this sermon, uh, for the encouragement it is to us even today uh, to cling to Christ, uh, not to, to, uh, to find or look for our salvation, our deliverance, our comfort in anything else or anyone else, uh, but to know that Christ is superior to anything that we might attempt to replace him with. Uh, Father, we pray that you would give us uh, in our hearts and minds a vision of Christ that is so beautiful, so glorious, that we would prefer him above all other things. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.